3: Before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you all so much to the premium subscribers who've been helping us out, building the new set, supporting our work over here. If you are able, breakingpoints.com. We love all our monthly, yearly, and lifetime members who are helping us out. And also, we are getting dangerously close to 1,962,000 subscribers on YouTube. If you can, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. We noticed that we're having a higher percentage than normal of not subscribed viewers, which if you aren't, what are you waiting for? At the very least, subscribe to the YouTube. channel hit like or whatever on all of our videos it really helps us out and now let's get to the show good morning everybody. Happy Tuesday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. Emily Jashinsky is in the house for uh, Ryan Grimm and Crystal. It turns out none of the leftists who work with us uh, want to work. It's a joke. Oh, a he
4: planned it. Also, you scared the hell out of me with your good morning. It was oh. so absurdly loud. See, you
3: don't understand. Uh, we got to turn it on whenever we're starting here. At this, this is what I try to tell <laughs> people. Whenever you do this gig, you got to bring the energy. And I know that that's what Uh, is for everybody at home. So since my conservative critics all think I'm a leftist anyway, um, I will be trying to bring uh, the leftist perspective. I'm going to do my best. Emily, just maintain the hard right position and we'll give everybody – as balanced of a view as possible. I did tell everyone we're gonna have the most ambitious crossovers mm-hmm. of all time here um, on the Breaking Points channel. So we, we've, we've got- never
4: done it before, by the we way. We have not ever done we've it never before. done That's it true. before,
3: I feel like we have. We've done a couple podcasts and stuff together. We're, we're old friends, so I think it'll work out. <laughs> uh, so we got a bunch of topics um, that we're gonna be discussing today. Obviously, the horrific shooting um, in Allen, Texas. We're gonna break down everything that we know about the shooter. There's been a little bit of a con- controversy around whether the information that we have is true or not. We're gonna give you all of the details possible, uh, just so you can know where things stand and you know what possible takeaways we can have. We'll talk about a little bit about the media, about whether Hispanics can be white supremacists. What a 2023 topic. Not something that we'd ever thought to be discussed. Uh, Secretary Buttigieg woke up from a three-year coma. He's decided to try and do something about airlines. We'll tell you a little bit about that one. There's some lab leak news, which just, uh, it, seriously, it's one of those where you can't even believe it's real, but it is real. Um, and we will break all of that down for you. AI, we We've been trying to stay on top of this story, Emily. I know you guys have been looking at it too. We know it's going to change everything. This is one where uh, AI and education, in particular, we're seeing massive disruption. And somehow we've decided Kamala Harris should be in charge. So yeah, what could go wrong? Well, we and put then, the
4: artificial intelligence in charge of the artificial. That's intelligence. right.
3: We've, yeah, that's a good. That's a good. I like that. All right. So reparations. Also, uh, since uh, it's just the two of us, we're like, hey, why don't we pick one of the hottest topics in social science? California deciding, possibly trying to pass reparations. We're gonna tell you what we know about that. Emily's uh, taking a look at the New York Magazine, Education, I will not say gay, a new uh, cover. And I'm gonna be looking at gun control and talking about facts, fiction. We also have uh, Ken Klippenstein, who is in the show today. He's got a great news story about new disinformation initiatives that are popping up all across the U.S. government. Ken has done some of the absolute, like the best groundwork, I think, in terms of exposing the disinformation, industrial complex, if you will, and so we are gonna get into all of that. But let's start with Allen, Texas. So. We didn't touch it yesterday because we was still a developing situation. We didn't really know much about it. Now, of course, it's become a major national story, not just because of the horrific tragedy that's happened and the victims, but now it's a sparking a meta conversation around not only guns, which I'll be talking about in my monologue, but also about uh, you know uh, white identity politics, far right, the motives of said shooting, the way that this media uh, treatment is happening. First, just uh, some on-the-ground facts, the initial reaction from a breaking news reporter and NBC affiliate, it. Here's what he had to say.
0: Now authorities report the first gunfire came in around 3.30 Saturday afternoon. That's when witnesses say a man dressed in black wearing body armor looking similar to a police officer began walking through the mall property here firing indiscriminately, sending thousands of people running for cover. Authorities tell us a police officer that was responding to an unrelated call heard that gunfire and ran towards the sound immediately engaging the gunman shooting and killing him. But in the moments before police arrived, we are told that hundreds did whatever they could inside this property to survive.
2: So we ran to the back, barricaded it with some concrete bricks, and then right then on the security camera, thank God we went in the back at that time, we saw him walk right by, masked up, fake police outfit on.
3: There you go, Allen, Texas, the initial uh, reaction, you know, kudos to the police officer not taking a page out of the Uvalde playbook, running towards the sound of gunfire, actually doing his job. So questions now, Emily, after a couple of days, who is this guy? Um, and uh, there were some initial reports about how we knew the name of the shooter. His name is Mauricio Garcia. But then there were media reports about how he had been inspired by possible white identity Now, before we get to said tattoos and alleged social media profiles and all of that, let's start with what we actually know. Um, Let's put this up there on the screen from the Washington Post. This was actually released also by investigators. These are verified facts from the investigators who are on the scene. They say not only were they investigating the Texas gunman's, quote, alleged white supremacist ties, but they have now confirmed that Mr. Garcia, Mauricio Garcia, joined the Army, the U.S. Army, in June of 2008, but was, quote, terminated three months later for some sort of mental health condition. Three months, obviously, not that long of a time uh, to be separated. Didn't even uh, qualify for his initial training before he went ahead and got separated. So, In terms of the verified facts, we know that the gunman's name was Mauricio Garcia. We know that he was 33 years old. We also know um, that he lived somewhere in the Dallas area. Now, from that point on, it's all coming down to some breadcrumbs that were possibly left Online. And the reason that I'm saying this um, kind of in a more trepidatious manner, Mm -hmm. Emily, is because it has sparked a bit of concern as to whether, quote, this is some sort of psyop or not. Now, I'm going to withhold my judgment for now, and I'm just going to show you what people are reacting to. Just a warning these are, you know, these are really terrible images, but let's go ahead and put these up there on the screen. Initial images that were taken off of a Russian social media website. I'm not even going to try and tell you the name. Uh, Something like Odo Odoklasinitsky. I think I did that pretty well. The second largest social media site in Russia where the alleged shooter was posting. um, On those profile, he apparently had a profile or allegedly had a profile where he had no connections, no friends, and was almost using it as some sort of personal diary. On the left, you can actually see a vest, a bulletproof vest with the RWDS Um, logo that was on it. That stands for right-wing death squad. That's something that's been appropriated by far-right groups here in the United States. In the middle, obviously, uh, you can see two fresh SS tattoos and a swastika hearkening to the Nazi era, as well as a uh, Texas tattoo that was on the shoulder. A very odd uh, meme that he actually posted, which is certainly a discourse igniter, saying, Latino children have two different paths. One of them is to, quote, act black, and the other one is to become a white supremacist, and also posting a YouTube account. The YouTube account was live. Um, last time I looked at it, and I'm not going to lie. I mean, anytime you see any of these, these people are straight up freaks, Um, you know, wearing masks and pulling it down and just acting in a really, really bizarre manner. So Emily, I want to get your reaction to this because the initial take that I've been able to see so far from uh, the tin pools of the world and, and several other people who are out there is that this all seems a bit too convenient. A, number one, these images were unearthed by Bellingcat, which is certainly an organization with, I I, would say, I think it's fair to say, like a more neoliberal bent um, on the Ukraine. They're taking money from the
4: CIA. Yeah,
3: so they, they, you know, it's, a, it's a group that has been connected to the State Department and the US government. We're not above uh, some conspiracy minds here. Uh, on the other hand, um, whenever we look at this, we see tattoos, including a Dallas tattoo that's on the shooter's hand Mm -hmm. compared to uh, one taken from the scene that was released um, there they do those do appear to match Uh, the name is it seems to match the uh, in terms of the details that were released we know that the right wing death squad was included on the shooter's vest that included in the photo here so what is your take on this like a do do you think that it rings true possibly true I I, again I'm trying to withhold my judgment and, and look at it Dispassionately, um, I can see why people have questions about this um, as to how it was on Earth and how "quote unquote" it looks a little bit too convenient. But at the same time, so many of the details do appear to add up here on the social media profile.
4: Well, I think the likely answer is probably the the I mean the less suspect answer. Mm -hmm. It's probably just most likely that this is one of the very many mentally ill, mentally struggling people in this country um, who chose to act out this expression of their personal anguish in an incredibly tragic and awful way. Um, And that's really not that hard for me to believe. And, I mean, of course it's not. It happens every week. And in terms of the identity question, well... I mean, this is again also not that hard to believe because people's minds are swimming in garbage. Yeah. So, like this idea that you can come up with a Hispanic formulation for white supremacy mm-hmm. in the media. I think we have this as an element. Um, it's it's the last element in this block. You can see side by side here, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal headlines showing. Let's go and
3: put a eight there up on the screen, yeah, guys. Please, Thank Thanks, you. Um, yeah.
4: yeah. So you can see white supremacist views after eight mm-hmm. killed, um, and this is on both of these. I think it was on both of the front pages. Of the print editions yesterday, too. Yes. And that is, again, it's misleading. It's out of context because if you don't know that the shooter is Hispanic, Mm. you have a completely different takeaway. At the same time, you have a guy with SS tattoos. And a swastika. And a swastika. Mm. And a lot of strange tattoos, a lot of strange beliefs. But given... The sort of worldview that we're all swimming in right now. I don't think it's particularly strange to imagine that a, a confused and mentally ill person would uh, get involved in, in an ideology like that.
3: Right. So Elon apparently uh, jumping on the train here. Let's go and put this up there on the screen. Um, a Redheaded libertarian tweeting out that uh, quote: "It's a psyop and it's not even good." About questions around how exactly this guy's social media was profile uh, was posted. He says, "Quote: This gets weirder by the moment." So. Uh, Again, I I think I just wanna spend some time and and look at this. And given the fact that we have photos, uh, a face reveal by the gunman, which appears to match um, the person, we have the age, the way that this profile was actually found, you can actually go check it for yourself, um, was by searching for the verified birthday of Mm -hmm. said person. Now, the question is, is why is this weirdo freak uh, posting on the Russian social media website? Now, apparently, this Russian social media website has zero content moderation. One of the reasons that uh, Garcia has had problems with previous social media platforms in the past is he kept getting booted off of Facebook and of uh, normal US-based social media companies because he was posting like weird Hitlerized propaganda and Nazi-inspired stuff. So that is a plausible explanation as to why he would be keeping some sort of odd video diary. I guess the only other theory um, that is out there is that this is some sort of plant. And I mean, look, I Guess it's technically possible. Uh, we should wait, um, all of the facts uh, that arise as to what we're going to see that the investigators release, whether they verify that these are social media profiles. I should say, there are some uh, social, there are some uh, company or uh, news organizations which claim that they have verified that this social media profile does belong to this gunman. Now, once again, um, it is certainly possible. One of the breadcrumbs that we had uh, met was that the investigators had seized the laptop or and the computer and the cell phone mm-hmm. of the gunman. And they were the ones actually who initially said it looks like he was into some crazy stuff, which is what prompted some of the investigation. So anyway, I think this is all just a long way for me of saying of if you are out there and you are skeptical around this, I can tell you, like I spent hours of my life uh, digging in, uh, seeing like where the social media profile came from, the verifiability given the hand tattoos and all of that. The alternative explanations just don't pass the smell test to me. One of them was that this is some cartel-related mm-hmm. um, gun incident. The thing is, is that the victims of this shooting—one in—is like a Korean family of four. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh, the only surviving person of that family is a six-year-old child. And there's a gun. Or there's a GoFundMe. Let's go and put the GoFundMe in the link here, um, yeah. if we can. Uh, you know, we have an, an Indian woman, for example, like who was killed. It, it appears to be just completely indiscriminate. So, the, in terms of victims, like why the, the Cartel thing wouldn't make sense. Not saying that uh, that there aren't innocent people who haven't been killed in cartel-related violence, but I'm saying like there doesn't even appear to be any link on this at all. We have the investigators themselves saying that this is some sort of uh, you know instigated attack by um, somebody with you know far-right views, and then on top of all of that, you know, from what we can see again in terms of the details. While I understand that this certainly will be used by people who, you know, have a bone to pick on gun control. I'm doing my own monologue on this. Or, you know, who want to say that, you know, white supremacy or whatever is the biggest problem that we face in the country, that doesn't necessarily negate some of the facts around the case. And I think that in general, instead, what we should try to do is have a productive conversation, not just to talk just about mental health, to honor some of the victims, including the small children, three-year-old at one point um, who was killed in this, and then try and arrive at some sort of consensus as to like who and what and what we can do about this as we move forward. Just to also show you, I know that there were some questions around the mugshot um, of this person. Let's go ahead and put this up there on yeah. the screen. Um, because this is this is what a lot of the initial um, confusion was around. So the two mugshots that you can see there on the right were m- mugshots that were distributed on social media that appeared to match the name of the gunman. Now those were never released by law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And so people were like, hey, the tattoos or whatever um, that were on this alleged gunman's social media profile don't match the mugshots that had been released, or not released, that were initially distributed online. Now, this is also, I think is also a very long-winded way of pointing out, don't believe everything you see on the internet. Uh, That's why it took a, you know, like we do this for a living, Emily, and we're sitting there spending uh, again, literally hours being like, okay, what's actually been released by the police? Yeah. This, this, the name, the ties, and right-wing death squad. Okay, that's what we know. Now, what was released from social media by a cat, which you know is, uh, is definitely a suspect organization. Okay, now, just because it's released by them doesn't mean I'm going to dismiss it. It just means I'm going to scrutinize it. It's like, okay, so I got this and this. I'm trying to match this up. And then where's the confusion coming from? I get where the confusion is coming from. Uh, put that all together to me, it appears to be the, the social the legitimate social media profile um, of the shooter. All of that said, all the questions as to whether he was some plant, people were like, oh, his tattoos are fresh and all that. Listen, I mean, I think sometimes we try to apply a rational mindset to a psychotic killer. Yeah. These people are freaks. Like, you know, mentally sane person murders eight innocent people in cold blood for no reason, and then blogs and posts about it. And so, it's
4: not gonna make sense to you if they do.
3: Okay, it, it, yeah, it, it will <laughs> never make any sense. And actually, the most disturbing part when you watch it, if anybody who's ever like watched videos of like truly mentally ill people um, or schizophrenics that they create, it's just like you... The reason why it's so foreign to us is because it's another pl- planet, it's yeah. another yeah. world. That's kinda how I felt consuming this man's content.
4: Well, and I mean, it strikes me as we're talking about it that this is not, this is a meta story because it's also a story about how we get the news now. That's And point. that you have yeah. all of these people, like, listen, one of the best documentaries of the last 10 years is Don't F with Cats. Mm, it's mm-hmm. so good, okay, mm. but you have a situation like that playing out on a micro level every single day, um, and every time there's a horrible tragedy like right. this. I mean, imagine, In all honesty, if 9 11 had happened with Twitter. Yeah, good point. Just like imagine. And so the alternative where you have total monopolized corporate media, not great. Um, but what we have right now is not great yeah, either, it's a mix and, between it, the two. and it makes it really hard for us to litigate the truth mm-hmm. in these circumstances without also getting bogged down in divisive, painful, and, and untrue politics at certain times.
3: Yes. Okay. So let's go to the next part here, which is a, a more of a meta conversation. Um, can white na- can Hispanics be white nationalists? Let's go to put this up there um, on the screen. The rise of white nationalist Hispanic sisters, written by Axios. This was kind of being passed around in a uh, what's a, like in a in a in a way where people were joking about the headline. I will admit um, that it does like sound ridiculous when you say it. And yet, at the same time, we have to try and break it out. And this is actually why I think so many of our labels around all of this doesn't make any sense at all. Like, can you be a white nationalist Hispanic? It's like, well, one of the interesting things is because I am from Texas, and I actually know third, fourth, and fifth generation um, Hispanics, is that the term white Hispanic does exist. (laughs) And then you have people who have, or are of Mexican descent but whose families have lived in Texas since before Texans came, but through intermarriage and all that, ethnically identify as white. And so what do you do with that? I mean, you know, I think in terms of our, like, box checks and all that, and this is also why I think all of our racial obsessiveness is ridiculous. I am effectively just coming around to, instead of, can Hispanics be white nationalists, can Hispanics or anyone else be far right? (laughs) And I just think that that's a much easier and cleaner way of discussing it, like like what it's like to me. The idea, you know, here's the other thing. When you put it that way, can Hispanics be fascist? I mean, have have you ever read the history of fascism? You know, where did all the Nazis go, people? Um, You know, it's it's not that hard to figure. Where were the last vestiges of, like, far-right dictatorships, you know, throughout the world? It doesn't take a genius whenever you put it that way. Um, And also, you know, there's all these questions about, like, why you would even be inspired by the SS or the Nazi regime. Like, once again, you know, many of these, uh, you know, Latin American... Um, military dictatorships took direct inspiration actually from the Nazis. In some cases actually worked with the Nazis. Many of them uh, even borrowed some of their ideology. Even the, Many people don't know this. Even the Nazis themselves, like the SS, for example, um, had divisions and people who were within it who were not German and who were not even Aryan. Mm-hmm. You had, like, Serbia, like uh, Slavs who were members of the... Why? Because they bought into some, you know, whatever the crazy ideology was, and it was actually a, kind of a controversy within the SS at the time. My point being <laughs> is, like, people who are crazy, murderous you know, uh, crazy, murderous, fascists, are not always the most ideologically consistent. (laughs) And so to me, uh, I think it is easier to discuss and look at it as can Hispanics, can blacks, can Indians, can anyone be quote unquote far right, can be inspired by fascist, non-democratic politics, be racially discriminatory? Yes. I think that's actually a very easy answer. Well,
4: and I mean, it yeah. depends on their definition of white nationalism, which is used all of the time in the super inflated sense. And mm-hmm. now, of course, in this case, it looks like it hasn't been applied in an inflated sense. It looks like there's a legitimate case that mm-hmm. this is somebody who believed he had an ideological formulation that allowed for Hispanics, as he says in his own meme. Yeah, he put his own meme. It's in there. his own People, meme, yeah, um, yeah. to be white nationalist. Yes. So if he thinks he can come to that irrational ideological mm-hmm. formulation, by all means, to your point, point, though, by all means, like that sounds like white nationalism to me. Um, But to your point, it is what Axios seemed to be doing with that article mm. and what you see on these front pages is this attempt to make it sound like something is extremely widespread when it is, in fact, a very small, small percentage of the population. It doesn't mean that that can't be a dangerous, mobilized, right. animated percentage of the population. But we know right now that the establishment is inflating these definitions in order, very specifically, to justify surveillance of people who have dissenting viewpoints. And so I think it's an interesting conversation, right? And we could sit here and talk about, you know, what constitutes Hispanic white nationalism all day. But when I see it coming from the press like this, again, we can't have an honest conversation about it because what they're trying to do is just say, well, we actually need to surveil all of you because look, he's going to go to Russian social media.
3: Yes. This is also why it is difficult. This is also why I hate racial terminology in the United States. For example, with Hispanic. uh, The typical definition, I think, according to the US census is somebody who is a person of Cuban, Mexican, Puerto Rican, South, or Central American, or other Spanish descent. Now, as Hispanics and people who are of, quote, Hispanic or Latino origin like like to look at, for example, if you are from Spain, yeah, I mean, the odds are you are white, and a mix of more, of like more mm-hmm. now are you hispanic I guess, you know, under our definition, are you a Spanish American? Like once again, this is where it starts to break apart. And then through our race kind of obsessed media, they'll say like that person somehow has something in common with someone who is from Puerto Rico. It's like, well, yeah, maybe 500 years ago, not today. Or same thing with Puerto Rico versus somebody from Colombia who barely has just as much in common with somebody who is from Honduras. Just because you speak the same language doesn't mean actually that anything is going on. You ever been to Central America? I mean, even within Central America, you have a tremendous amount of ethnic diversity and cultural practices. They don't they're not all the same. And I think that's why, whenever I think and consider you know, all of this, it just is easier to actually take that element out of it and say, can anyone who is on the internet be inspired by far-right ideology, far-left ideology? Yes, actually, it seems it's quite clear. And so, anyway, I I think this is more of a meta-conversation around how uh, we can all discuss this without seeming like we want to blow our brains out. And it, it is a nuanced and interesting question around ethnicity, around race, around identification, and around what multiracial heterogeneous societies look like. I mean, 150 years ago, if we were here in Washington, D.C., and we said that Irish people were white, you know, white Presbyterians... Would be like, what are you talking? Are you- you're crazy? No, mm-hmm. they're not. You know, they're different. Or then, if you, you know, not even that long ago, if you said that, uh, for example, uh, Italians were white. Yeah. Again, the Irish people would be like, no, we're not. We had nothing in common <laughs> with them. A hundred years ago, this all sounds ridiculous. So that's my point: is that these things can uh, evolve, um, and in reality, like it's more on us to try and make sense of this, and the last thing I guess I w- wanna say is sometimes the semantics of the conversation themselves are so ridiculous because we haven't even spent enough time, media, and even here now, just honestly, eh, honoring some of the victims. Yeah. You know, some of these people were, I mean, this, yeah, Korean-American family has been massacred, you got an orphan child, you got three-year-olds who were killed, you have not only immigrants, but people who were born and raised here who were murdered in cold blood, their lives taken and ruined, and you know, a, a, one of the alleged, things that were said by the shooter was, the media always celebrates the people who was a shooter, they, all, they can't help themselves. Yeah. The people who get killed never get as much attention. He literally said that in one of his alleged social media musings. So, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, it comes to the question of like, should we even be talking about this person? But because it has become such like a meta-cultural yeah. uh, talking point, I almost feel like we have no choice. But it's, it's always difficult. Every single time one of these happens and it is a horrific tragedy. At the same time, Emily, uh, Secretary Pete Buttigieg woke up, like I said, from a three-year coma. He said, you know what? Airline travel has been so awful basically since the beginning of my administration and of my tenure. So I've decided to finally do something about it now that things actually have been more normalized and didn't do a... Goddamn thing during the entire worst part of the crisis. I guess uh, better late than never. Uh, President Biden apparently woke up to it. This is always my issue too with people like Buttigieg and Biden. You people don't even fly commercial. You guys don't fly private. That's why you have no idea how bad it is um, out there. And it's not just for business travelers or people like me who fly a lot. It's like the families who were screwed on Southwest. Those are the people I feel for the most. People who plan vacations or honeymoons and they saved up all this money through COVID and, you know, you lose one day out of seven, that's your hard-earned vacation time, man. It's not a joke. I, I, I've watched people melt down in airport. I feel terrible for them, brides going on their honeymoons and things like that. Anyway, uh, so here's Secretary Buttigieg uh, and President Biden talking a little bit about how they're going to fix it. Let's take a listen.
0: The FAA and Department of Transportation are doing our part, but airlines need to accept their fundamental responsibility to better serve passengers. When they don't, we are here to enforce passenger rights and hold airlines accountable. In just over two years, this administration has delivered some of the most significant gains in airline passenger protections in decades. We have stepped up enforcement, rules, and transparency. We've empowered passengers with better information. We've helped get a billion dollars in refunds and counting back to passengers. And we have secured enforceable commitments around customer service that didn't exist just a year ago. But there's more. Last fall, the Department of Transportation proposed a rule that will be finalized this year If finalized as proposed, it would require airlines to show you the full ticket price up front before you purchase it, including fees for baggage, for internet, for changing your seat. And I'm proud to announce two critical steps that my administration is taking to protect American air passengers. First, we just launched a new website, flightsright.gov, flightsright.gov. It features a dashboard we created last fall to give travelers more transparency in airlines' compensation policies. So. If it's the airline's fault and your flight was canceled, or delayed. You can check the dashboard to see how the airline should be compensating you.
4: He has the name behind him. Yeah, just so
3: people don't know, uh, who don't, we're just listening. It's actually flightrights.gov, not flightsright.gov. You'll be uh, shocked flights, to learn. Flightsright.gov actually doesn't make any sense. Um, anyway, so yeah. so what are these proposed rules? Again, they're not even the new regulations going into effect. They're just proposals. Let's go and put them up there on the screen that will require airlines to compensate air travelers and cover their meals in hotel rooms if they are stranded for reasons within the airline control and would be in addition to the ticket refunds when the airline is at fault for the flight that's being canceled or delayed. Basically, these are the exact same protections that exist within the European Union. The problem is is that they a are writing the new rules, don't have a precise date for when they expect to finish, quote, but indicate they are working to quickly publish a notice that is required to get the process started. So not only did they wait two and a half years into their administration, Emily, they didn't even finish the job of the proposal. Whenever they did the press conference, and they have no update as to when they will be done. Listen, uh, you know, I have with Buttigieg, his level of incompetence, his lack of seriousness, it is so angering to me just because he was the chosen one. Yeah. It's like it's like you were you are supposed to be Mr. McKinsey Mr., I get things done. Yeah, I was only a small-town mayor, but I I have much more potential. He thought that the Office of Management and Budget was beneath him. He said, I want to be a secretary. I want to be a member of the cabinet. Give me transportation. And the reason why it's clear is he didn't actually want to do anything. He just wanted to fly around and cut ribbons and do nothing. And it turns out, this is the first time in probably 50 years, the Transportation Secretary is one of the most important people in our government, not only because of the infrastructure bill, but also because of the very basic Basics like this. Two and a half years, and they're still not even doing what they said that they're gonna do. This is all literally just like some checkbox for a press conference, and their out of stepness on this is just is it's humiliating from a basic governance perspective. This this is actually some stuff that the Trump administration would do. <laughs> this actually reminds me of how the Trump administration used to govern.
4: Well, but that's what I think is even doubly infuriating mm. about it is that you have Pete Buttigieg play acting yes. Mr. Secretary yes. on the camera when I went back and looked at what was what he said around the Southwest debacle. Uh-huh. Ro Khanna was out there tweeting at the time, Bernie and I had a Six months ago, told you guys to ratchet up fines and penalties yes. on these airlines. And so, why is that important? Because right now, when he's saying that they don't have a finalized plan or date for the rest of this, well, that six-month gap—how many people got crunched in it? Correct. Now, whatever, how many months this is going to be? How mm-hmm. many people are going to get crunched in it again? They don't want to actually do anything. They want to play act and have tough press conferences so that they can come out and say this administration has been very tough on the airlines. Yes. No, you haven't.
3: Yeah, and and that's a, like. Listen, I, I have flown several times uh, since the Southwest... Meltdown. I actually was in Austin days after the Southwest meltdown. I was caught in um, the Southwest
4: meltdown. Really? I oh, was I didn't know because that. in Milwaukee, D.C., it's, a, right. it's a great and route.
3: I remember seeing all the bags, and there mm-hmm. were all these people lined up to get their bag. And again, we were in the middle of vacation. These poor people are lined up for hours trying to <laughs> just to get their own luggage. Um, the, imagine having to stand alive with the privilege of claiming your own luggage after you already missed your flight. I was in the airport and at Christmas at that time. It was it was a complete nightmare. Personally, know people who had to drive hours. And hours. I'd heard so many stories. It's six months, almost six months now, since that happened. And this is the first substantive thing you're doing. And oh, and by the way, the FAA melted down too in between. Oh, and by yeah. the way, we also had two near miss crashes on the tarmac. Right. Actually, yeah, I don't know what's going on. I was also in Austin the morning that that near miss happened. So oh my maybe God. It's I'm. You. Maybe I'm. It's yeah, you. I'm the, uh, the Jonah, <laughs> I guess, uh, as they say in Master and Commander, my favorite movie. Oh my um, gosh. But put that all together, uh, and you see that the spirit that he brought to this interview from about a year ago, it's still exactly the same. He's still just a completely do-nothing figure.
0: Here's what he had to say then. What about uh, those lawmakers like Bernie Sanders, uh, Democrats in addition to him, uh, who make the case that that $50 billion, that came with strings attached, and that the airlines, when they do cancel on folks, when they do have uh, you know folks waiting on the tarmac for X amount of hours, they should be fined heavily. Well, that's part of what we do as a department. Look, our our preferred outcome is that uh, the passenger doesn't have this problem in the first place. But when we find that an airline is, for example, failing to issue prompt refunds or in some other way not treating passengers fairly, we will act. As a matter of fact, uh, a few months ago, we issued the stiffest fine in the history of our consumer protection program. And we have ongoing investigations about other practices. Uh, Again, we want uh, things to go well, but when they don't, we will act
3: when they don't we will act that's a complete lie do you want you guys want to know when we did our segment about that july 25th 2022 it took him 10 months just to get to the point where he's doing what they were asking him to do mm-hmm. at that point how many literally hundreds of billions of lost productivity hours costs of nightmare has been now you know inflicted upon The American and global consumer like this is once again, I want to say their rules are not even going into place. We are it's May 9th. Summer holidays are right around the corner. Me personally, I've got like eight flights I've got coming up in the next three months. I'm currently actually calculated around a 20 percent screw up rate, which is way higher than it used to be. Hmm. It used to be that the delay rate and all that was around like 12 or 15%, which is still way too high in my opinion. Um, but you know, it was fine. Flying recently has just been a total nightmare. And it is also causing a lot of people to incur costs that they never would have before. I know a lot of people who are eating two, three, four, five hundred dollars in charges for paying for direct flights simply because they have no faith. Yeah. That they'll be able to get their connection, and then that's what rich people can do. And now, you know, whenever you don't, okay, now you're sleeping in a hotel for overnight. You know, if you if you miss your flight, oh, now you're in line with a bunch of people. So anyway, you you look at this, and it's just like the lack of comp, the basic competence, which they promised us yeah, for the record. Yeah, yeah. Is, is out the window. That
4: was what Biden was building back. He was yeah, building back yes, better. Uh, right. But, you know, I mean, when people are, why do people fly? Well, because they have funerals to go to. They have yeah. birthdays to go to. They have special occasions. They have things that they've saved mm-hmm. up their hard-earned money for. And this is what our system looks like. And I think the really sad thing at the end of the day is that we are both over-regulated and under-regulated. And what does that amount to? We are just very poorly regulated. We are um, poorly
3: regulated, uh, b- uh, but the airlines are richer than ever. So don't worry. Yeah. You know, They're doing great.
4: They're buying, they're buying yeah. back, those stock. Yes,
3: they are buying their stock back, and we are paying them for their privilege. What a country. It's an amazing country. Let's go to the next part here. Actually, some decent news uh, that we very rarely get to talk about here on the show. Let's go and put this up there uh, on the screen. We had a big endorsement last night from former President Donald Trump on Truth Social. He says, quote, crooked Joe Biden has still not visited the incredible patriots of East Palestine. Mayor Pete couldn't get out there fast enough, but that's okay. Our movement, will be their voice. We will never forget them. J.D. Vance has been working hard in the Senate to make sure nothing like this ever happens again. That's why it's so important for Congress to pass his Railway Safety Act. J.D.'s terrific bill has my complete and total endorsement. Now, the reason why this is such a big deal is that this might be one of the few bipartisan areas in modern history where we might actually be able to get something something done. Because don't forget, only two months ago, President Biden endorsed the same bill. Put this up there on the screen. Statement from President Biden on the Bipartisan Railway Safety Act of 2023. That was almost immediately released, not only by J.D. Vance, but we also had Sherrod Brown who was on there. We had John Fetterman. We had the senators from Pennsylvania. We had a literal, almost equal parts, Democrat and Republican bill, Emily, something you almost never see.
4: On stuff like this, especially. Especially on stuff
3: like this. But now- We're set up for a major titanic fight. Hopefully, we'll be able to talk to Senator Vance on our Thursday show um, a little bit about this. But what we have to get to the bottom of here is the question of will the corporate Republicans and corporate Democrats acquiesce to this bill after heavy lobbying by the railway industry? Mm -hmm. Because this is where it is a crazy bipartisan um, nature to regulate them. On this, on this front, but also the caucus of people who have taken millions of dollars in donations from the railway industry is both right and left. We already know the Republican chairman of the House Transportation Committee doesn't even want this bill Soon. to go forward. Oh, the House, forward. yeah, yeah from right. uh, I think it's Troy Nells. Yeah. And the reason why is, oh, shocker, uh, libertarian, at least whenever it comes to uh, corporate issues, has long been a beneficiary of donations from the industry. Yeah. There are Democrats, too, um, who have taken a lot of this money. And the major block right now is getting the institutional support of right and left behind this bill when we have the crazy situation where the leading candidates in the 2024 race, the literal president of the United States and the ex-president of the United States are endorsing said bill. Why is this thing not passing tomorrow? There's no reason that it shouldn't be on the floor right now. The only reason it's not is because people like Mitch McConnell and John Thune, Mm -hmm. corporate Republicans, probably some corporate Democrats too, that are in there are not letting this thing actually come to the floor and then even then, corporate Republicans who are in the House of Representatives who are holding it up, saying that they wouldn't pass it. You know, why are they standing against Trump? That should be the uh, that should be the question. <laughs> Actually, yeah, yeah, but
4: we'll see. Media doesn't want to talk about it right. in that context, obviously, but um, you get- you have the heads of both parties mm-hmm. the heads of both parties as you just mentioned the former president the sitting president but more than that they're the heads of their respective Correct. parties who are in favor of this bill and I mean they're what National Review editorialized against the bill John Thune has yep. come out who's a real you know industry mm-hmm. guy and said oh gosh no we we don't want to overregulate this industry we were talking about this just earlier it's true that there are burdensome overly burdensome regulations in rail there's true it's also true though that there's incredible incredibly lenient and in lax regulations in rail. And this bill is a perfectly reasonable like stopgap measure until we can completely uh, go back to the drawing board, which is essentially what has to happen at this point, because both of those excess regulations and lax regulations are carve-outs from the industry. That's all you need to know at the end of the day. Where it's over-regulated, why is that? Well, it's in many cases because really the big guys know they can hurt any other competitor uh, by screwing around with regulations. And where it's under-regulated, uh, well, obvious, I don't yes. even need to explain why they would want something to be under-regulated, although you might have to explain it to National Review because they say, well, it's not in their market interest to be under-regulated, to which you obviously would reply, yeah. they have a freaky it's monopoly. It's
3: totally ridiculous. Exactly, thank you for saying that, which is that you know, it's it's in their interest because they have a monopoly. And we also should remember that these have not been responsible corporate entities. Their profits have gone up by billions of dollars in the last decade at the same time that they've been fighting for uh, fighting against paid sick leave, sick time and vacation time for their hardworking employees that they've also poured said profits back into the purchase of their stock so that the stock buybacks have made up a massive portion of their balance sheet yeah. at the very time that they should have been investing in infrastructure and in technology, which would have prevented possibly the train derailment in East Palestine. But at the very least, look at other countries. Look at Germany. Look at even China. You know, the amount of money that they pour into their railway uh, infrastructure. I'm not saying we all need passenger high-speed rail. I'm just saying, like, if we're going to (laughs) have rail through which we move dangerous chemicals, maybe we should make sure that they don't spill all the time. It turns out we have a 1,000 train derailments or something like that per on an annual basis here in the U.S. Compare that on a per capita, per mile versus other countries, and they are laughing at the rest of us, and it's because- we don't properly regulate these monopolies. They have to choose. Either we could have a totally free market whenever it comes to yeah. railroads, which, by the way, is not possible. No. Uh, in their entire populist episodes in this entire country, uh, in the past of our country, specifically around railroads, monopolies. We're talking about John D. Rockefeller and the power of the railroads and the gouging rates and all of that. Like We literally had this fight before, and we won, actually. The people won um, against the monopolists whenever it came to that. Uh, now, though, we seem to have forgotten that lesson. And in in the context also of uh, what's happening with the airlines, you know, basically the new transportation monopolized infrastructure. It's like we haven't learned anything. The well, consumer always loses.
4: Infrastructure yeah. is, yes, the infrastructure yeah. is the most basic function of a government. It's mm-hmm. like safety, infrastructure, the combination of both of them. And we, to the, to like bridge both of these segments between airlines and rail, we cannot even do the most basic things, despite being one of the wealthiest countries to ever exist on the face of the earth, Correct. one of the most technologically advanced societies to ever exist on the face of the earth. We cannot use all of these amazing resources. Sources that we have yeah. to do basic things anymore, and it's completely tragic. Right, it, it really is sad.
3: Anyway, look, good news, tr- buy, Trump endorses it, so let's get this goddamn. It's
4: huge news, and that's that's will done. keep people safe. Yeah, it genuinely yeah. will keep people safe.
3: Yes, it actually, it literally a could save lives. B Maybe we'll all be a little bit better off knowing that chemicals might be accidentally spilling and that big, big billionaire railroad executives won't be getting fat paychecks while cats are literally dropping dead in East Palestine. Mm -hmm. We haven't forgotten about that story. and We're going to continue to keep up on it. Uh, Like I said, hopefully we'll be able to get Senator Vance. We're working on it right now um, in the show on Thursday to discuss the bill. Let's go ahead and talk about the lab leak theory. So this is one where, of course you guys know you can't get enough lab leak here. (laughs) And for me, you reason, and Ryan
4: are just like the lab lead. Because here's the thing: uh,
3: for me, originally it was where did COVID come from? Yeah, that's layer one. But layer two is well, whoa, what is this multi-billion-dollar infrastructure that exists for mm-hmm. funding labs? That's mm-hmm. actually la- second layer. Third layer is wait, this multi-billion-dollar infrastructure funded by the U.S. government is completely unregulated, unsafe, and has been propagated by maniacs like Dr. Fauci and ideologues who believe that. Genetically engineering dangerous viruses is going to make us more safe. Then you peel the layer back even more and you find out that it all traces back to the 2001 anthrax attack yes. in October. And then you go a deeper level and find out that we never actually solved that so called attack or release or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And that there are some still very sketchy questions that multi billions of dollars were printed off of. Basically, we had almost a Patriot Act level of uh, revolution. In the sphere of biodefense. Well, it was we literally did. part
4: of the Patriot Act. No, I know, but I'm
3: saying it got no attention. Yeah. Like, yeah. everybody knows about the overreaches of the Patriot Act, of the dangers, mm-hmm. of uh, you know the billions of dollars spent on fake TSA screening. Nobody ever asked any questions, including me, until 2021, basically, uh, when we were talking about Lab Leak in 2020, to say, like, where did all of this come from? So, like, whenever you start to peel back the layers, you just see this, like, vast infrastructure of basically direct- Jurassic Park yeah. playing yeah. out on uh, a mass human scale, and the craziest part is, you know, using the Jurassic Park analogy. It's like, we just had the dinosaurs escape from the cage, and all of us know the dinosaurs escape from the cage, and the answer from the scientific establishment is, let's give Amgen, I think that's the company, uh, even more money so they can genetically engineer even more vicious dinosaurs, because that's don't the way you, that we're going to do
4: that. And don't you dare yeah. say we shouldn't be yeah, to these dinosaurs, Correct. because if you do, you are an enemy sure. of science and you're an enemy
3: of science itself. So let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. Scientists currently linked to the Wuhan lab are back in business because the U.S. is renewing a grant for natural origins research to EcoHealth Alliance. Now, I've talked about this previously, but this is actually a new grant. Quote, from EcoHealth Alliance. We have a lot of human serum samples in freezers around Southeast Asia. They will provide clues. We are resuming, as of this month, the funding of the EcoHealth Alliance with gain-of-function research in Southeast Asia, the very same group that was funding the Wuhan lab, under the current terms of the grant, they will receive approximately $600,000 for the next four years to continue work on, quote, bat-origin coronaviruses. Hmm. It is committed, however, to not subcontract its work to China. Instead, it will just focus on Southeast Asia and by the way, this isn't just uh, new, uh, existing samples. Collecting new virus samples from the wild to engage in recombination, a.k.a. gain-of-function research. Still headed by Dr. Peter Dazak. Mm. For those who don't need the reminder, or who need the reminder, Dr. Peter Dazak was not only the conduit between Dr. Fauci and the Wuhan lab for funding, he was also, Emily, a member of the World Health Organization's team investigating lab leak, yeah. where they came to the conclusion that it was not a lab leak. Um, he, the way he, Dr. Dazak arrived at this conclusion, by the way, is he asked the Chinese, and they said it was not a lab leak. <laughs> and whenever, uh, even 60 Minutes was like, are you just taking the words for the Chinese? He's a British guy. And he's like, well, what else can we do? Yeah. And I'm like, I, you know, I don't know, like, uh, circumstantial evidence uh, actually subpoenaing records uh, within the who and your own organization no no we can't do any of that uh, okay so, i like
4: how you did him sort of as mrs doubtfire
3: yeah well that's what was necessary <laughs> he actually is a clownish figure I, I don't just mean that i guess i do mean it in a very mean way uh yeah anyway you should go watch the interview um if you're interested
4: well the audacity though peter right. daszak is like unrelenting and somehow remarkable yeah,
3: it is and, like, and that's why he I, shouldn't
4: be able to show his face in public after what he did and yet he's being quoted yeah. uh with this like, very arrogant take, like, well, we're very glad to resume this type of blah, blah, blah. It also
3: reminds me, too, of how badly the media has done a job here. So, for example, uh, if everybody remembers Valerie Plame, um, this was the <laughs> household name in the mid-2000s, and the reason why is that she was a CIA agent, she was married to this ambassador, and the ambassador was linked uh, to the yellow cake uranium story. The point that I'm making is that- You've got the Bob in, Novak
4: book behind that's you. That's right, I've
3: got the Bob Novak book behind you. Back in the mid-2000s, um, after Iraq WMD, the media actually did their job and said, "How a How do we get this so wrong?" Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that they didn't, you know, apologize completely, but they at least investigated. Mm-hmm. And household names were people who were intimately involved in mm-hmm. the cover up of Iraq WMD, from the intelligence officials to people like Scooter Libby, like Valerie Plame. All of these were characters who Americans could tell you about because they knew the chain of events which led to the false story about WMD in Iraq, which led ultimately to the invasion. If you are not you know, online and consume our content or the Joe Rogan podcast, or whatever, you don't know who Peter Daszak is. Sure, you know who Fauci is, but you don't know some of the secondary and, frankly, most important characters mm-hmm. in this story. Uh, Let's go and put the next one up there on the screen, Richard Ebright, who, once again, I want to give Richard a shout out. He is the Board of Governors Professor of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at Rutgers. But the thing is, is that Richard has been on the forefront of biosafety and pushing back against this vast behemoth for decades. Uh, I've cited him before. I found a quote of him, Scientific American, back in 2007, pushing back against biodefense research Hmm. uh, in the post-anthrax world. So, probably we owe, like, if there was ever a Cassandra around this, like, it's Richard, and he has also been On the forefront of this from the beginning, and as he currently points out there, despite possibly having caused a pandemic and definitely having repeatedly and gravely violated terms of a U.S. government grant, EcoHealth Alliance currently has 16 active U.S. government grants and contracts totaling more than $57.8 million dollars. And that's another thing that I want to emphasize. Not all of what we're funding EcoHealth Alliance has to do with gain of function. Some of it actually traces back to what I alluded to, this shady yep. uh, like national bio defense thing which is mm-hmm. housed within the same, you know, WMD office inside of the Pentagon that we we know nothing about these agencies they're basically black holes that have been operating with impunity now for 20 years and the only reason that we even know anything about it is oh they've caused one of the worst pandemics that the world has ever known
4: well yeah, yeah. there's yeah. that and there's also this question of like the yeah. media knows that this oh, stuff yeah, exists and Ken and in, in Ken's segment will talk a little bit about this like they know it exists they don't mm-hmm. ask any questions about it because partially if you do ask questions about any of this you're a crazy conspiracy theorist and Peter dazak who's been- quoted in the article that was just up on the screen, was colluding with Fauci and with Francis Collins to cast anybody who was suspicious of the EcoHealth Alliance grant being used in Wuhan, uh, partially with American taxpayer money, um, that we couldn't talk about as a conspiracy theorist. And so that's how they've been able to shield themselves impenetrably from criticism. We'll have sort of independent media talking about this, but basically nobody else gives it airtime because the government itself will collude with the Pentagon, with the media to shut down any questions of it, um, or to at the very least ostracize you and cast you as a crazy person if you happen to have questions about to your point, Sagar. They'll even tell you how important this research is. Well, if it's so important, then maybe you should have a little bit of transparency.
3: Well said. We talked a lot here about AI regulation, what AI regulation might and should look like. I've I've done monologues, so is Crystal, about what you know, how we balance free speech concerns and political correctness with the genuine fear that technological development will uh, overpass us and will, could possibly supplant us. So, of course, what you want uh, whenever we're talking about AI regulation, Emily, is the best and the brightest who are involved. And. Um, <laughs> because of that, uh, it seems that the White House is taking heed. They're taking heed about how seriously they want to take this issue. And so they put Kamala Harris in charge, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic. Let's go Mm -hmm. and put this up there on the screen. They say, Biden and Harris are meeting with CEOs about AI risks. Uh, They met with the heads of Google, Microsoft, and two other companies involving uh, in developing artificial intelligence as they are rolling out their initiatives meant to ensure the rapidly evolving technology improves lives without putting people's lives at risk. Um, During that they had this weird and bizarre drop-in by President Biden into the meeting, which was totally just a non-planned drop-in, right? We always have cameramen pointing at the door with subtitles that are ready uh, whenever somebody does drop into a meeting. Uh, President Biden came in. uh, Here's what he had to say about AI. What you're
0: doing has an enormous potential and enormous danger. (laughs) I know you understand that. And... uh... I hope you can educate us as to what you think is most needed to protect society as well as to advance it. This is really, really important.
3: So a lot of platitudes. Still not really sure... What's happening? Dude, I'm can we curious just, what you make of all this. Well,
4: I was going to say, we should just pause there. And he was asking industry leaders. That's mm-hmm. like going you know, to a, a bunch of railway barons and Good saying, point. I'm really curious. I want you to tell us what we need to do to protect the people, people from this. Yes. And so it, that in and of itself is amusing. But I, it actually reminded me as we were talking, I um, did an interview with Nita Farahani recently, mm-hmm. who's super interesting, has that new book, Battle for Your Brain, out. She actually said she was on a commission on bioethics in the Obama administration. Trump dissolves the commission. She said to me, I was incredibly surprised that President Biden, who our commission met with under the Obama administration, didn't, after he took office, create his own council or commission, despite the fact that there had been this gap during the Trump administration. And so, again, we have our leaders being caught completely flat-footed by the fact that GPT, obviously, it took a lot of people by storm. A lot of people weren't prepared for how quickly it was going to move. It is now the fastest-growing social media platform of all time. Like, if you look at the chart, it's Mm. just nuts. You have like Facebook, uh, Twitter. Right, Right. yeah, in terms of daily, it's insane how quickly it caught on. But again, when you are going to talk to industry leaders and ask them to protect the consumer, Mm -hmm. that's how you get caught flat-footed because they think they're fine. And the arrogance of the AI industry has been, there's been cracks in it. um, And we've covered that, you've covered that a lot, that you have a lot of people who are in the industry who are like Hinton who have recently left the industry who have different opinions about this. Well, why did he leave Google? Because he didn't think he could be in effective advocate for the protections that people need inside Google. Um, And I think that's when you see the president turning to Microsoft and Google appointing, uh, actually, it's a pretty fitting appointment for Kamala Harris, because in some ways, she really is the champion of artificial intelligence in a very literal sense.
3: (laughs) The The funny problem, too, I've talked about this with regulation is, of course, Microsoft and Google will want regulation, and licenses for people who are new entrants. Because what they want to do is they want to come and they want to roll up the existing AI market, incorporate it into their search and battle it out against each other. And then basically what they would want is regulate all of their up and coming competitors. I'm not saying that regulation is an answer. I'm saying that their type of regulation that they appear to like the most is one which definitely would be a helping hand to the monopolist. Whereas, let's say we had proper antitrust legislation on the books. here's some interesting uh, history for everybody involved. Microsoft. Microsoft was actually sued under the Clinton administration for antitrust. Now, that suit itself, even though it was dropped by the Bush administration, Microsoft felt compelled not to enter certain markets at that time, specifically because they were concerned that by doing so, they might add to the monopolistic argument and to the case that was being brought against them by the DOJ. So once again, not even a successful case, just the pressure of political pressure itself was enough to make sure that they didn't get involved. Now, let's say that we had proper AI legislation or even monopoly legislation on the books. Google not even is allowed to get into AI, not even allowed to try and pursue AGI whenever it comes to their search products. Same with Microsoft. You know, these companies would be so big that they wouldn't even be considering it. Well, imagine that world, a world where ChatGPT and OpenAI remain open instead of $10 billion, multi-billion dollar companies who are partnering with existing corporate giants. Mm -hmm. Now we have a startup a brand new competitor. And then we have all of these other different startups and competitors that might actually revolutionize search and change things where Google, at the very least, would be able to have to pay for it or maybe they're not even blocked by that. We could have a different licensing regime. We have to go back and think about yeah. the web. And if, if we think AI is as revolutionary as the web, what went wrong with the web? I mean, one of the things that went wrong is if we think about 1998 being on the internet, we're all having an awesome time. It's super cool. People are checking out different websites. They're like, "Have you checked out this website, that website?" It hadn't been rolled up yet, and you know Yahoo and all these other directories. They weren't even really search. It was more like a list of cool websites no. that were around there. There were genuine communities. There was uh, serious free speech, and there was the idea this will lead to you know all these. Great ideas and creativity and freedom. And then what happened? It got corporatized. It got rolled up effectively, both by Google, by Facebook, by Twitter, and the vast majority of web traffic and our experience on the web happens through portals of, let's say, like five to 10 different websites. That actually is what was the opposite of what people predicted in kind of the early days of the kind of crypto libertarianism that sprung up from the early 1990s internet. Why would we choose, Emily, to go down and do the exact same thing whenever it comes to AI? Well, we we, we would never choose to do that.
4: No, we wouldn't. But this headline yeah. might give you uh, uh, some some answers. This is from June 22nd, 2021. So it is a couple years ago in the Washington Post. Mm. Biden administration full of officials who worked for right. prominent tech companies. Right. The ties are most prominent. The White House, where 13 aides, some of them with the ear of the president, have previously worked for Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Lyft, Microsoft, Twitter, or Uber. That's pretty much the answer to the question because um, the way that Washington works is when you do have the ear of the president, um, you know, it's, it's known that you may have had ties to the industry or whatever, but it runs on like goodwill. And if you have built up this bank of goodwill, you've been a loyal foot soldier Mm -hmm. to the president, your friends uh, at Google, your former co-workers are chirping in your ear about how it's actually going to be a disaster if you regulate it. We're going to fall behind China, which has very heavily regulated AI and is developing it and there are all these national security concerns. If you if you have that person chirping in your ear and you go tell the president that your message gets priority over any other message. And so it's not just that people are paying cash bribes, obviously, um, but it's more that, like, you have the influence and you have the the amplified voice over everybody else. And so Biden coming to them and saying, you know, you're Kamala Harris said the same thing. They said you have ethical obligations here. What you're doing could be very dangerous. Great. Mm -hmm. Um, What are you doing? But Joe Biden does not understand artificial intelligence. I'd be surprised. I mean, if-
3: I barely do. The whole right. point yeah, is exactly. that we need real experts who don't have any uh, who don't have any stake in the companies to be making the legislation mm-hmm. not the other way around. Yep. Uh, which actually brings me to the next point. And some really interesting news, actually. Uh, Sal Khan of Khan Academy, let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen, is actually piloting a version of ChatGPT called Khan Mingo. And it's a new tool trained to act as a tutor and a teacher's assistant. Uh, it's a really interesting managed version of the OpenAI platform that, quote, can help guide students in their studies, not enable them to cheat. A pilot currently running with a handful of schools and districts to try and test the software. Um, the thing is about Khan, uh, Sal Khan, and Khan Academy is obviously they revolutionary, re- revolutionized, like, initial tutoring with YouTube videos uh, I remember you know even watching some of his videos back when I was going through late high school and throughout college and a lot of stem people I know were just absolutely obsessed with it and with Wolfram Alpha you know things and, and uh, brands like this by looking at it and uh, how he is developing this technology what they're trying to do is have like they say Engage in conversation even with voices of literary characters (laughs) to serve as debate partners to guide students through math problems to help debug code. And I wanted to pair this, I think, with the previous one because one of the places where I see the most hope, Emily, is in helping revolutionize education. Yeah. Because education is bogged down by bureaucracy and busy work through Mm -hmm. pop quizzes and B.S., it's all fake, and we all know it. We're talking about, you know, online homework assignments. Like, you remember, did you take Intro to Econ, those e- Econ courses? I don't Where, know
4: anything about the economy. Uh,
3: okay, well, uh, so- The, <laughs> the answer sir, is actually no. I'm uh, sure someone will clip that out. <laughs> Anybody who's ever taken, like, Intro to Macroeconomics or whatever, this is all sanitized, homework- that you're doing on a computer program that your university has licensed, and that you're not learning anything. You're like, they are very basic questions where they, you know, they, they code in some ways that you can't cheat, and it's all just checkbox. Same with statistics, if I remember my statistics, statistics courses, where the quizzes and all of that, it was just nonsense. Like, it wasn't conceptually getting to anything. What I hope is that AI, will destroy all busy work because it would be ridiculous yeah. to, to even yeah. assign it when you know it was so easily cheated on. And instead in my statistics statistics classes or macroeconomics classes, instead of doing box checks from textbooks, we'd be like, what is GDP? <laughs> what why does it matter? You can ask what, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. The what a, is the the AI? No, I'm saying what we wouldn't in the course, like I'm yeah. sitting there,
4: yeah.
3: laptop closed, I'm sitting with a professor, and you're like, explain this to me in terms that I can understand in a real dialogue. Instead of six, 700 people in a classroom all looking at some stupid PowerPoint, everyone fake taking notes and then fake doing homework and we're all just you know gaming our GPA so we can go work at McKinsey yeah. afterwards. Like well, this, this, this is why it's like I want that dead and gone and from what I've heard with the destruction of Chegg, bringing back in-person essays written by hand, yep. I love that. Love that. Courses and stuff written by hand, Emily. And removing busy work and and bringing back Socratic discussion in classroom we might actually learn something.
4: It's amazing, yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, that's the thing. Like, there's yeah. doom and gloom about yeah. generative AI. This is what I'm happy about. This is yeah. good stuff. Yeah. Uh, Walter Russell Mead had a great piece in Tablet yesterday. I don't know if you mm. read it. It's no, called, You Are Not Destined to Live in Quiet Times. Okay. And the way he frames it is like, listen, the reality here, in the same way that this is the reality in the Oppenheimer era, is that this is a massive rate of change. It's happening over the course of your lifetime, whether you like it or not. Um, and so that means some of it's going to be really, really dangerous. And some of it can be harnessed and channeled for the good of mankind. Right. When you look at generative AI, um, and you look at the state of our education system, which we're going to be talking about a little later in the so- show, you posted last week, the mm. crazy history scores for oh, eighth yeah. graders right. plummeting right. in yeah. the United States. Well, how much history homework do students do that is yeah. rendered basically completely useless if you send them home in a world with chat GPT? Right. They can get 100% on that stuff. <laughs> so like their radical change is, is going to have to happen right now, no matter what. And if we can actually come to the question of education, with a new mindset because we are being forced by a stupid robot to prevent kids from cheating, then <laughs> by all means, like bring it on. That sounds great.
3: Yeah. I mean, and the questions that they include in these history exams are just so stupid, and mm-hmm. they really do not help anyone in any way. It's just rote memorization. So I've pulled up, for example, from the A-Push exam, the AP. U.S. history exam. Here are some samples from the free response questions, okay? So they will give quotes and they'll say, you know, to respond to different excerpts, describe a major difference between this excerpt and another es- uh, expert's historical interpretations of the New Deal, or briefly explain how one event or development from 1932 to 1945 1930- is not explicitly mentioned in excerpts that could be used to support an argument. This is an argument published in the 1930s. Around the New Deal, this leads to just rote memorization, yeah. and rote memorization <clears throat> is just the worst possible thing that you could try and you know you could try and uh, give people like other examples that I've seen is they'll they'll be like what here are four re- like like which of these reasons is why America abolished slavery? Yeah. you can't multiple choice that. <laughs> it, it's it's like there are it's a multifaceted question that which requires us all sitting down and reading a range of different books from the original perspective to the postmodern perspective and you know reconciling which has validity and not historically and all of us would come up with a different answer why was america founded in the first why did america ditch the articles of confederation like we all have these stupid history textbook answers that's it's much more complicated than that.
4: But, well, yeah, yeah. and this is the, yeah. the lesson of the Articles yeah. of Confederation is not that there was another constitution named the Articles of Confederation, exactly. and yeah. that's what history teaches you to right. memorize right. as opposed to, like, you, you actually like truly internalizing what happened. It's like, well,
3: you know, we had this idea, we fought a revolution to have less power in the hands of the federal government. Maybe we took it too far, and then there was a rebellion. And then in the context of that, we said, okay, we're going to have a constitutional convention, and we're going to try and figure this thing out, which was very different from the original conception. That's pretty interesting. When whenever you kind of get into it a little bit, and then how we arrived at the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and all the stuff that we eventually all lived under now for over 250 years. That's a story where you might actually get kids to look up rather than, like you just said, well, well we had this thing and then we ditched it 13 years later. I used and we all still sing the, what's the song? Like the School of Rocks.
4: Oh, the right? yeah. <laughs> well, I forget what it's called. Both of us are yeah. public school kids. Correct. Mostly. I used to just like mercilessly mock homeschool kids, obviously, I because I still I'm, do. I'm, I'm a bully. And yeah. Uh, yeah, no, they yeah. deserve it in many cases. And we're speaking <laughs> speaking—we're speaking as people yeah. who know a lot of many homeschool kids. Uh, but that said, when I talk to them now and realize how much That's better true. their education were than what I got, um, not everyone. But when I talk to them, it just like blows my mind mm-hmm. and I feel like I lost out on something. And so if we can, because the, if the robot forces us to uh, educate ourselves in a way that makes us better regulators of robots in the future, future generations have more civic mindedness, more Socratic learning. Um, I'm not optimistic, but to your point, Sagar, if anything pushes us, to that, it's this.
3: Yeah, I hope. I hope that it does. This actually is what college education in America used to look like pre basically bureaucratization post uh, 1945. There are a lot of interesting reasons as to why that happened money probably being number one and if there is one hope as to how we can escape it this is what it is let's go to the last part here uh had to throw this in because emily is here a resident (laughs) culture war expert i think let's go and put this up there on the screen a california reparations panel has okayed a state apology and payments like how they put apology first (laughs) yes that's right yeah it's kind of funny um, they say let's let's go ahead and uh, get into it here a little bit. California's reparations task force has voted Saturday to approve recommendations on how the state may compensate and apologize to black residents for generations of harm caused by discriminatory policies. The nine-member committee convened 2 years ago has given final approval at this meeting in Oakland to a list of proposals that now go to state lawmakers to consider for reparations legislation. Barbara Lee is actually co-sponsoring this bill in Congress to study restitution proposals for African Americans. Reparations are not only morally justifiable, they say, uh, but they have the potential to address longstanding racial disparities. Uh, One of the recommendations included here um, in the legislation, Emily, is uh, payments apparently up to a million dollars in some cases per resident. Now, Uh, I think this is always a hot topic. It's one uh, people feel very strongly about. Um, And it's one where I think it really bears scrutiny in terms of not just black Americans. How do all Americans generally feel about this issue? The polling on it is actually quite complicated. One of the better approximations that I try to come to is Affirmative action. So affirmative action effectively is like an in kind, what like an in kind acknowledgement of discrimination and of it's almost like in kind reparations. Can mm-hmm. can we agree on that yeah. definition? I think that's yeah. fair. Uh, let's go ahead and put this that's, up there.
4: That's the ex- explicit ambition of its writers.
3: Right. I, I I agree. And so yet in California, remember this in 2020, the same time that the so called reparations council was uh, uh, formed. Well, guys, on a vote l- voter level. of Californians, some 10 million people, voted against affirmative action. They voted against bringing affirmative action back in college admissions. So I think that this is a great approximator of how Californians, some of the most liberal, democratic-minded people in the country, even they don't agree with affirmative action. And there, we're talking about in-kind effective racial you know, benefits within the state system. Now we're talking about straight-up cash. Now, again, whenever it comes to the polling on this issue, it is somewhat complicated, and we had our team do a, a good job here. Let's go ahead and put E3 up there, please, on the screen. To the best of our ability, whenever it comes to the view of reparations and all of that, Some 77% of black Americans, compared with 18% of white Americans, do support reparations, specifically for the descendants of enslaved people. All of US adults, though, The answer comes to no, 68%, and yes, at 30%. Uh, For white Americans, it's 80, and then 18 for yes. Black Americans, it's 17, no, 77, yes. Hispanic Americans, 58, 39. Uh, Asian Americans, 65, no, 33. Uh, Amongst age groups, it's actually, unsurprisingly, kind of split up. 52, 45 uh, for ages 18 to 29. The majority, but slight majority, saying no, uh, who are younger, 30 to 49, to 63 to 34, 74 24, 81 and 18. Now, in terms of uh the general polling here, there's some changes whenever it comes to income, which I find uh, kind of interesting. So if you ask lower income Americans, the slight majority are still against 54 versus 42. Middle income Americans, it's 74 and 24 and upper income Americans, 72 and 27. So lower, Ameri- lower income Americans, more kind of on board with reparations, middle and upper uh, middle class Americans uh, generally against it. So I think it's important to put in the context of, in general, this is a, quote, unquote, divisive policy on the merits, just whenever you look at it. In terms of California itself, they have already rejected and voted against this effective type of policy. So then the question is, is that, is this solving the problem that we want to solve? Right. And the problem that we want to solve is that we have had racial discrimination in this country that has manifested itself in economic disparity. Now, what is the best way to do that? If you were to look at this policy, you would posit then that solving racial discrimination through economic inequities that have manifested is to have direct cash payments of some X sum to specifically black Americans with a acknowledgement that what has happened there is uh, obviously a moral crime and must be rectified. However, and I would posit this. Uh, and this is my, my kind of view of this. I wish Crystal was here. I would like to hear also what she had to say. But I've doing, this we, need, we
4: need more white people in this conversation. You're right.
3: That's right. Uh,
4: but and actually,
3: though, that's what it gets to is at the end of the day, we are talking about taxpayer money. We are talking about a democratic problem, a small d democratic problem. So we all do kind of get a say as to how we want to address rights and wrongs that are all been done in, in our name. Um, and the way that I've always looked at it is this. If you look at the lower income Americans that I referenced, uh, they disproportionately include Hispanic, black, and lower middle class, uh, and lower class white Americans. The wage gap between lower income, white, Hispanic, and black Americans is effectively marginal. Mm -hmm. So I would posit then, that if you want to address uh, racial inequity, one of the best things that you can do is just simply help all poor people, because what will happen is that you will both increase the livelihood, the opportunity, and the disparity of past wrongs that were done, yes, specifically only to black Americans, but you will also, at the same time, help his, uh, lower middle class, lower income Hispanic and white Americans, and instead of pitting said groups against each other, you actually end up helping everybody. Now, of course, this is better, easier said than done. It involves possibly minimum wage increases, maybe it involves cash transfers, maybe it involves uh, you know, tax credits—a variety of myriad different ways that we could go about this. But that's kind of the framework where I'm coming at it from. And I would say also that the framework that I'm coming at it from is dramatically more politically popular. And why does political popularity matter?
4: Because we live in a democracy.
3: We don't live in a unilateral dictatorship.
4: I'm curious what you think. You know, I think two things are are absolutely true, and they Mm. can be true at the same time. One, that generational wealth disparities are very real Mm -hmm. and are very directly and obviously the result of explicit white supremacist discrimination policies that were baked into our constitutional system for far too long. Um, On the other hand, I think it's also true that there's no way to meet out a reparations policy with a semblance of justice, because at the end of the day, um, proving This is going to be extremely difficult in a country where everyone is so... Mixed mm-hmm. and has been mixed for years and years and years and years. So, what justifies why one person? There are people who are we're, we're getting into like the grossness, uh, the the just absolutely repulsive one drop, disgusting type racial science at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Because what justifies somebody who is completely white, probably looks like me, who's able to trace their ancestry right. back to slavery? Right. Um, and that's California does directly redlining mm. uh, in this this proposal that you get X number of money. Up a certain year, if you're uh, for for each year you were affected by redlining policy in California, mm-hmm. um, probably easier to prove, and it can probably be proved more directly than slavery itself. But it's you're then going to take from Hispanic taxpayers money and give them. You you may be forced to give them to people who look exactly like me and whose family um, has been in this country long enough to have been, for instance, likely on on. Many is, sides of this conflict.
3: This is exactly why I think that trying to parse all of this is so ludicrous. And once again, I would say I am not against helping poor black people or all poor people in this country. In fact, though, and this is why you know trying to parse this, and I've I never necessarily wanted to, but I think you know possibly are forced to, is you know what? There's better evidence to say that the worst economic hit that ever happened to black americans was the 2008 recession. Right. Um, actually the greatest wipeout of black wealth in the history of the United States happened in 2008. It actually was not, you know, necessarily redlining policies from Jim Crow as we were discussing repulsive of that bait. Be- I'm not even necessarily comparing apples to more. What I'm yeah, saying, yeah, though, yeah. is that whenever we talk then about addressing, you know, black wealth and and uh, making it so that we can restore people to some sort of uh, equality, not necessarily in terms of outcome, but in terms of opportunity, I would again then have to come back to the idea that we should look. At The policies, the actual policies that led to the wealth disparity that we are right now, mm-hmm. some of which include Jim Crow, but also now, uh, now we're talking about 2008, which was a universalist kind of screw you to middle class and to poor people. And then say, well, is there some way you can normalize opportunity here across the board? Yeah. And by doing so, in general, as I've always come back to, I recommend uh, Matt Brunegg, if anybody wants to go and look at it, has uh, frequently looked at where actual wealth gaps are. My perfect personal favorite statistic, is uh, you'll often hear in the media, like the white and the black wealth gap. Well, the, the truth is, sadly, is that the wealth gap between white and black Americans on an overall basis the vast majority of that gap is between the top 10% of white people and the top 10% of black people, as in the top 10% earners of whites out dramatically the top 10% of black. But if you take the median earner um, between whites and blacks, Hispanics and others, like I said, the gap between those on a wage level is really not that big. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to help the most amount of people, oh, increasing an overall wage in the economy has the actual benefit um, that we all come to
4: and we can't even have honest conversations about what's happened with entitlements and welfare state. And I know that gets into really mm. hairy stuff, but Thomas Sowell can talk about this. Um, Walter Williams can write about this. And they get cast as, like, white supremacists mm. for raising some entirely legitimate questions about whether white liberals have wrecked uh, the black community with well-intentioned but harmful policies that don't have, for instance, that aren't temporary enough, that aren't that aren't with the right incentives. And a lot of our audience probably disagrees with me on that. All I'm saying, though, is that we cannot even talk about the government structure structures uh, that in some ways have been contributing to this, and I think very clearly, um, because well, it. It's just you're, you get knocked down as a bigot or whatever, even if you're a black economist, yeah, like a celebrated true. black economist for having that conversation. And again, the theme of the whole episode today is that we can't even pre- perform basic functions as a society because we are so bogged down in these tribal divisions.
3: Correct. Uh, well, we do have one update though for you whenever it comes to these reparations. They probably are not going to happen. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. Despite the fact uh, that they have been proposed and all of that, the, even the San Francisco gate here is saying, quote, why they are likely doomed. One of the reasons why is that they say um, whenever he's seen his way to make amends, the task force has spent the last two years. However... Uh, the package that is being discussed, even in terms of San Francisco is some sort of one-time payments and all of that, even if they're formally adopted, never going into effect, is because of the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm. What they say is that the simplest form in terms of benefits is likely dead upon arrival um, because the idea of a particular race getting payments would almost immediately and certainly get struck down. This is Gabriel Chin, who is a law professor quoted from the UC Davis, most likely to be at play would be the e. Equal Protections Clause in the 14th Amendment, um, which I was specifically speaking out, was said that any policy that sort people by racial categories, known as racial classifications, are typically seen as a violation of the Equal Protection Clause unless governments can provide, quote, a strong justification for them. So, very likely, um, even if this were to try and to go into effect, it would face blockage at the U.S. Supreme Court. But who knows? Uh, we never know where we will get uh, in terms of that. And even if they don't get implemented, the fact that they're on the table, I think bore the discussion that we try to handle sensitively um, here at Breaking Point. So, Emily, what are you taking a look at?
4: Well, just yesterday, there was a flurry of headlines about Republican efforts to, quote, ban books. New York Magazine rolled out a new cover story on the topic with an unintentionally hilarious image showing the words, quote, I will not say gay, written over and over and over again on a chalkboard. This is a great place to start. Notice the wording from the magazine in this tweet about the story, quote, convinced schools are brainwashing kids to be left-wingers. Conservatives are seizing control of the American classroom. This is somewhat amusing because the story's author, Jonathan Chait, is forced to concede some three-quarters of the way through his piece that yes, schools now instruct students to abide by the values of political liberalism, on a wide scale. So wide as is the scale, as Chait himself mentions, the country's largest teachers' union is explicitly working to include critical race theory, for instance, in curricula from pre-K through 12th grade, pre-K. That's literally in his article. So right there, he's dispelled the myth of his own premise that Republicans are fantasizing about some left-wing takeover of education. It's not a fantasy, they are correct that it's happening. But whether it's good or bad, is actually the question. This is the case with the corporate media narrative on this topic time and time again. Hilariously, the New York Times reported last month that a billionaire DeSantis donor was cooling on the governor, in part because of these alleged book bans in Florida. The media spin is straight from the Democratic Party talking points, and it's both incredibly stupid and incredibly powerful. It is, of course, Literally true that Republicans want to ban some books from school libraries. It is true that some legislative proposals would target books that are probably fine for those libraries. What's missing is the context about, one, what's in the targeted books, and two, that random legislators introduce imperfect and crazy bills that go absolutely nowhere every single day and the media doesn't act like they represent a real threat unless it's convenient for the left. Indiana Republican Governor Eric Holcomb signed one of these book-banning bills just yesterday. Here's how Gannett's Indy Star reported on that. The new law requires schools to publish their library catalogs online, create a process in which community members can request certain books be banned, and removes the legal defense librarians currently have to claim a book was available for, quote, educational purposes if felony charges arose against them for making available books that are harmful to minors. The first part of that, by the way, is democratizing school libraries, small d. But the, quote, harmful to minder standard is thankfully a very high bar for litigation, according to Indiana's code. The book would need to contain, quote, Nudity, sexual content or sadomasochistic abuse, a a persuasiveness for minors to engage in sexual activities, offensive content to community standards for adults, considering what's suitable to minors to see content void of, quote, serious literary, artistic, political or scientific value for kids. Now, those things are all broad enough that they're open for interpretation, but they're not crazy guidelines as a starting point. So what prompted all of this? Well, as in many states around the country, the book "Gender Queer" freaked parents out. Why? The book is full of, nu- of nude cartoon teenagers having intercourse, giving each other oral sex, and more. Really, it is. Indiana's ACLU trumpeted "Gender Queer" as the state's most challenged book of 2022 in a Sunday tweet. They're not making the argument that they think they are. In fact, PEN America's data shows, quote, genderqueer is the most challenged book nationwide last fall, was the most challenged book, followed by a book called Flamer. In other words, the so-called bans are targeting legitimately inappropriate material. You can see it on the screen. If you're not watching and you're listening, um, essentially, it's what I described earlier, cartoon teenagers, nude, having sex with each other, talking about extremely sexually explicit things. According to Axios now, Biden's campaign has evidence that pinning book bans on the GOP is polling really well for Democrats. So expect to hear way more about these book bans in the next year and a half. And here's where it's important to just cut out the Nonsense. The media will blame Republicans for stoking this culture war battle while ignoring, for instance, Muslim parents in Dearborn fighting against genderqueer, and then the teachers' unions fighting against those parents to implement debunked history or queer, or bring the 1619 Project to their community and put it in their public schools. But the left stokes this cultural war by putting porn in middle school and high school libraries, or critical race theory for five-year-olds, then defending it with the ACLU and with unions. The right's pushback is nowhere near perfect, but if we're going to wrap it into this, quote, book ban narrative and make it sound like this is all just about censoring Toni Morrison, we're making everything so much worse. As Sager pointed out last week, history scores are pl- plummeting among American students. It'd be really easy for the unions and special interest groups to just cede the point on these glaringly inappropriate books and move on. That's so easy to do. They put those books there. They can get them out. But because these institutions are captured by mediocre ideologues, they'll cling to the porn, rile up parents with good and bad consequences, and do a really, really bad job actually teaching students.
3: And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Okay, inevitably, after almost every single mass shooting, we hear the same response from our media and the Democratic establishment. Need more gun control? Gun control is the only answer. President Biden is nearly on repeat with it after a spate of mass shootings in recent months, and you get basically the same treatment from the media. I want to also acknowledge that a lot of people who watch the show probably agree with that, but something I've always tried so hard to emphasize here is it's just not that easy. If it was, then we would have done it already. It's not a matter of the NRA or the gun lobby. It has to do with our Constitution, the Second Amendment, a right to self-defense, and ultimately, a level of authority that we are willing to provide our government over our lives. In my estimation, the gun debate has amounted to this. Mass shootings are seen uniquely, maybe rightfully, it's the most visible, sick, and American unique phenomenon. That has been conflated, though, somehow publicly with all gun violence in the eyes of the non-gun-owning public. So let's start with a review of what I've always touched on in the past, mass shootings. What are they and what are they not? If you don't follow this much, you'd probably be forgiven for thinking that mass shooting statistics cited by the media entail school shootings or the shootings that just occurred like at the mall in Allen, Texas. The actual definition, though, is actually up to the government. And when the government is involved, and you already know that politics is involved. President Obama actually forced the FBI in 2013 to adopt this definition, a single attack in which three or more victims are killed. On its face, I guess it sounds reasonable, but is it? Consider U.S. firearm homicides and the type that they are involved in. Mass shooting accounts for only 0.1% of all deaths. Sadly, the vast majority of homicides, especially those that involve three or more people, are those that involve a family member or an acquaintance or by an intimate partner. A stranger killing another stranger is only about 25% of all homicide, and that is almost all crime. Furthermore, what weapons do they use? When we hear calls for gun control, they are obviously focusing on assault weapons bans. Here too, data is important. Handguns alone account for 56% of all homicides. If you include their involvement with a rifle, you would actually add a further 24%. A so-called handgun ban is really the only type of ban which would work somewhat, and nobody proposes that. Why? Because it's completely unconstitutional. In fact, as I have laid here before, there's absolutely zero statistical evidence to say that an assault weapons ban would have any impact whatsoever on mass shootings. The other pet policy proposal of the establishment and the media is a high capacity magazine ban. The theory being that shooters would need to pause and to reload. This would allow first responders critical moments as well as reduce the initial amount of deaths. Again though, here's the thing. There is no statistical evidence on a societal wide scale that this would have any impact on mass shootings. I wanna provide empathy for people who think all of this stuff will work because I really do understand how one could be led to believe it. It takes an undue amount of research for the average citizen to see the actual facts surrounding this issue. The facts aside, I think what the gun debate does more than anything is show how much we are talking past each other and how little that we really understand our own countrymen. Gun ownership is probably one of the best single signifiers in America today for party identification. Consider this map side-by-side from 2016. On the left is what the Electoral College would look like if only people who didn't own a gun were voters. As you can see, every single state, save for one, would go for Hillary. On the right is what the map would look like if only people who voted who had guns had in 2016. Trump would win all but one state. That about says it all, doesn't it? Gun owners and non-gun owners are completely at odds politically. But what I would argue is it's downstream from culture. For the non-gun owners, guns are inexorably linked to violence, both by the state and by criminals, including mass shootings. Connotations around them are dark, better left unsaid, in most cases outside the realm of polite society. Banning them seems just like the easiest option. Any discussion of the Second Amendment sounds ludicrous to this person. For gun owners, it's the opposite. Guns certainly are linked to violence, but they're also to other things that have nothing to do with violence, like hunting or bonding with family members, recreation as a tool, sometimes self-defense. Much of this too comes from a rural and an urban divide. When you're out in the middle of the country or 45 minutes from authorities, possibly without cell service, the ability to defend yourself either from another person or from a wild animal actually becomes very much more acute compared to a city where the response time is less than 10 minutes from authorities and people are literally everywhere. In these cases, you can see why the other would react viscerally around the gun debate to each other and how the lived reality of both on a day-to-day basis clashes so hard with others. Personally, I think it's important to look at things this way, and especially to the Metropolitan Group, who overwhelmingly hold the view of more gun control. When you say things like the Second Amendment shouldn't apply today because there's no way that the founders could have predicted AR-style rifles or high-capacity magazines, it actually kind of opens up some dangerous ground legally. Imagine if someone stated that because the internet didn't exist in 1787, the freedom of speech or freedom of the press should not apply there, or that the Fourth Amendment right to search and seizure did not apply to cars because they also are newer inventions. In both cases, it would be ridiculous because we understand the Constitution as a set of principles laid out to apply to a dynamic and changing nation which we can rely on to give us even in the face of unprecedented societal and technological change. Now, to the extent that there is a policy solution, it must come from a deeper and multifaceted understanding of the problem, from loneliness, identity politics, and the litany of social ills that seem to have manifest in this sick freak in Texas. In other words, it won't be easy, but that doesn't mean that we still don't have to deal with it. So that's always where I come on the gun issue. And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Joining us now is Ken Klippenstein. He's a great partner of us. He's also a reporter over at The Intercept. It's great to see you, man. Hey, good to be with you guys. Ken, you've been at the forefront of reporting on this disinformation industrial complex. You came out with a brand new bombshell story. Let's go and Mm -hmm. put it up there on the screen. Quote, the government created a new disinformation office to oversee all the other ones uh, and you reveal here some new offices inside of the Pentagon that are tasked with quote unquote overseeing disinformation so t- tell us about these dystopian orwellian uh, agencies being funded in our name Ken. okay so
5: if we want to we want to start with dystopian let's talk about the one in the Pentagon because mm-hmm. I, I dearly love the name of that okay it's called the influence and perception management office <laughs> yeah which is a term that harkens back to the Reagan administration. Oh. I think under his CIA, he had a, a, a perception management office. I think right. the goal was to kind of try to influence the coverage of the Iran Contra, or the, the, the Contras yes. in Nicaragua. That's Right. Right. And so now they've stood that up in the Pentagon. What's interesting about these agencies that they're working on now is that they're not just disinformation agencies. I found out in the course of the reporting that, uh, for example, in the Department of Homeland Security, there are nearly half a dozen counter disinformation offices. So now they're creating ones to oversee the ones that they already have <laughs> within the agencies and departments. And so um, what I found in this story with the Foreign Malign Influence Office, that's overseeing the ones that are overseeing mm-hmm. all the various uh, agency and departmental Efforts And so this is in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which has access to the full suite of intelligence across all components of the intelligence community. So this is really a significant elevation of their efforts. Got it.
4: Well, and can we talk about what these offices are authorized to do? Because that's part of what you get into in the piece and can make a big difference as to you know, whether something is nefarious or whether it's just the Pentagon. Being the Pentagon and doing what it does, um, there's actually indications that they have pretty serious authority and capabilities in these offices. What are they authorized to do?
5: Yeah. So what was unprecedented about the FMIC is that um, instead of just having access to that specific agency or that specific department, they have uh, full sweeping access to all relevant intelligence that that they deem um, uh, you know pertinent to disinformation. And so, uh, particularly after her story on which you had us on to discuss, and I appreciate that very much, mm-hmm. With well, the DHS mm-hmm. efforts, there was, it feels like there was a big rebrand on the part of the federal government to say, this is about foreign disinformation. Yes. But when you talk to experts about it, in the age of the internet, it's really hard to differentiate between four. So let's get into that. And
4: that's intentionally what they do. that They blur the line intentionally so that they can sweep Americans into the Hamilton 69 dashboard.
3: So if we're like, oh, well, we're talking about uh, Russian disinformation. It's like, well, well, all of a sudden now we're talking about Facebook. And then we're actually talking about election ads. And
4: we're talking about Jill Stein.
3: Or Jill Stein. And one of the things you pointed out that still annoys the crap out of me was that they they were going after criticism of the Afghan withdrawal as disinformation. Mm -hmm. For example, do you have any more concrete examples you could share with the audience just to put this all into perspective as to why should people be afraid? Like why should we care if the government is regulating disinformation?
5: Yeah, so to give you guys a brief timeline of these counter disinformation efforts, it began with 2016, uh, the Russian Active Measures campaign. Mm -hmm. I mentioned in this story, uh, RAND Corporation report, which is the most detailed one to date, uh, that actually looked at the hard data and said, "Okay, what practical effect did the Russian propaganda campaign have?" And they take a very dim view of it. Bear in mind, this is a Pentagon-funded think tank, very respected, not the kind of right. like you know highly politicized thing you'd expect from the the think tank world uh, generally. And they say that um, you know while there were Russian efforts, they had almost no uh, practical effect. They were very disorganized, extremely incompetent. Um, you know, all the sorts of terms that you think of when we look at how they're executing the war in Ukraine. It looks like that that's how they carried out this propaganda campaign. And so um, to, you know, take that very negative view of it and compare with that, this full court press on the part of the federal government and the national security state uh, to respond to this, it just seems like very disproportionate to the, to the right. threat.
4: And there's also an interesting media aspect to this, which is that you know, as you, you put, we were actually talking about Crystal and Kyle's wedding. That <laughs> you, you, the This is in the budget, right? like this.
5: This is in the federal budget, yeah. This was not a classified, I mean, I have story based, I've had stories based on classified documents and stuff that's not supposed to be public. This was this sitting right there, months. nobody, yes, yeah. that's the other thing. This was, uh, um, uh, the, the Foreign Line Influence Center had been debated for years now, mm-hmm. publicly, and nobody covered it. Nobody you know?
3: covered it, yeah. nobody's even uh, considering what the potential dangers here are, Ken, I mean, as we watch this behemoth expand, we've had Jacob Siegel on the show to talk about the disinformation industrial complex. We've had you on the show, you and Lee Fong's reporting about the government. It never seems to actually stop anything. Or am I wrong? Are lawmakers actually waking up to this fact? Are they looking into what's changing? Or are they just changing their tactics and rebranding them in different ways? So
5: the previous story that we had on the uh, that, that focused right. on the DHS efforts, um, particularly the countering foreign influence um, office, not to be confused with the um, foreign influence task force of the FBI. There's so much overlap between these different different entities. Uh, The main effect that it's appeared to have so far, to be completely candid with you, is to cause them to drive it underground become more secretive and disclose Mm -hmm. less about it. Because you'll recall, the quadrennial Department of Homeland Security review came out um, just a week ago. Bear in mind, like six years past the 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 date that they were supposed to release mm-hmm. it. And I had originally been uh, leaked in my first story, a draft copy of of what that was. They were stripped virtually all mention of any of this from wow. the from the um That's review that ended up coming out. That's like their big strategy document saying, this is what we're going to do with the
3: department going forward. Right. I mean, yeah, go ahead, Emily. Well,
4: I was, was going to say, I mean, it's just insane that they appoint themselves with these massive powers, and then they also, sh- they just strip away any semblance of transparency whatsoever, so it exists, but you have absolutely no access to it. they
5: didn't even announce the
3: FMRC. Right. So these are multi-million dollar... Do we know some of the individuals who are in charge? I mean, we got that, remember the czar, or whatever her name was? Uh, Nina
4: Jankowicz. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Who,
3: by the way, still America's has, sweetheart. She still has an open invitation. I've invited her many times to come on the show. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, it'll keep Ken on. away. Yeah, <laughs> I've invited her. I, I, I,
3: I will give her as much time as she wants to speak. Ken, um, do we know any of the figures who were involved here? Yeah, there's a former
5: senior CIA um, uh, official who was, um, I think, one of the top officials for the analytics section of the CIA. There's mm. the um, case officers that you know are wow. work operating on the ground, and they're ones that analyze the intelligence. And so I think reading the tea leaves there, that means they really are going to be collating, gathering, and and <clears> you know putting together all of this information from these various uh agencies that exist uh you know all over the federal government at this point to respond to this
3: mm-hmm. Just well, remarkable, f- Ken! Fantastic job on the reporting. We're happy to support some of the work that you're doing with the Intercept and all of that, and have you ha- here on our show. You've always been at the forefront of this, and we will continue. So, thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it. Emily, thank you for uh, being a great co-host with me. It was a very ambitious crossover. This uh, concludes today's today.
4: edition of Fascist mm-hmm. Live yes, with Regis and Kelly. Points, <laughs> yeah.
3: fascist, fascist points. Fascist <laughs> points. I'm sure. We'll, I'm sure the haters will uh, call, crawl out of the woodwork. It's okay. You know, we we love our haters as much as we love uh, our lovers. I guess. Is that that the way you would say it? Go ahead. To
4: be clear though, I am Regis and you are Kelly. There you go. I am Kelly. Maybe you're Kathy. I I
3: fully embrace embrace that role. We love you guys. Thank you very much. CounterPoints is going to be on tomorrow for our normal show and I'll be back here with Ryan on Thursday. Much love to Crystal on her honeymoon. We Mm -hmm. miss her very much dearly. Thank you all to the premium subscribers to support our work. We will see you all later.